scripture reading tonight is 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 through 12. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily upset or troubled either by a prophecy or by a message or by a letter supposedly from us alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the man doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I used to tell you about this and you know that what currently restrains him so that you will, so that he will be revealed in his time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining will do so until he is out of the way and then the lawless one will be revealed. The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working with all the kinds of false miracles, signs, and wonders, and with every wicked deception among those who are perishing. They perish because they did not accept the love of the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will not believe the lie so that they will believe the lie, so they will be condemned, those who did not believe the truth but delighted in the unrighteousness. Merry Christmas, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, As we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, um, so this second Thessalonian study that we're doing makes a lot of sense for Advent if you understand what Advent is, is about. It makes less sense about Christmas, um, but we mix those stories together, right? We, we, we mix the Advent season, which is looking to the coming of Christ, and we mix that in with the Christmas season, which was remembering and looking to the first coming of Christ, right? And so um, it's, it's, a, it's an odd passage for, for Christmas, and that's why I'm not preaching it. Uh, I gave it to Brandon. So, um, But Brandon's going to come and share with us um, tonight. Um, most of y'all know Brandon. Um, he is... Uh, currently a student at um, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, he's working towards an MDiv in Biblical Studies. Yep. Um, and so, um, but he's going to come share with us, and um, I'm looking forward to it. So come on up, Brandon. So yeah, as Ash was saying, uh, Merry Christmas. Let's talk about the Antichrist. Um. But first, let us pray. Lord, thank you for your grace to bring us together to talk about your word. Let us be so fixed on your truth that we will never again look to righteousness, that it will never be appealing to us, and that we will hold fast to your word. Let us glorify you in this, and let us glorify you in this Christmas season. It's in Christ's holy and precious name which we pray. Amen. So, truth. Um, What is truth? It's a question that Pontius Pilate asked uh, in the Gospel of John uh, to Jesus. Walk into a public university, and they'll give you an answer. They'll say that truth is relative. They'll say that truth is a social construct, that it differs from place to place, from time to time, from people group to people group. Truth changes and is different 
other people will give you a different answer. Walk into any science lab and they'll tell you that truth is what is measured. Truth is empirical. Walk into any place of worship and they'll say truth is what is given by this God or that God. But what should a Christian say? A Christian should say that truth is Christ. But a lot of people don't like that idea. A lot of people rub up against that idea. They may affirm it, but they will not love it or accept it. We're going to be talking about that. Uh, let's look at what the Apostle Paul said. If you haven't already, turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 1 reads, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to be easily upset or troubled, either by a prophecy or by a message or by a letter supposedly from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. There are two things that Paul starts out with and says are certain. One, the Lord Jesus is coming. Two, we will be gathered to him when he comes. In this, he doesn't doubt. But clearly, the Thessalonians do doubt this. That's why he's writing to them. Um, they had been persecuted severely. They had had all sorts of horrible things to them, uh, as we've talked about in prior weeks. Like when Paul was there, Paul was ran out of town, let alone them who lived there and stayed there. They've been persecuted incredibly severely. And now, naturally, they're wavering. They're going, is this worth it? Is it going to be worth it in the end? Is Christ actually going to come and save me? But then someone in Thessalonica shows up and they say, no, but you, but the Christ is coming. He is coming immediately. He is coming soon. He is imminently here. It's time for him to come. And then the Thessalonians, on top of all their concern for being persecuted, all of a sudden they're incredibly stressed out. They're anxious. They're wondering, is Christ coming? Christ is here. Have we missed him? Or is, am I going to be taken with Christ? Is Christ going to leave me? When you're per so heavily persecuted and you're so concerned that Christ is your hope, and then somebody's saying your hope's being taken away, a lot of people left. A lot of people apostatized. A lot of people followed after this false prophet who's saying, do this, do that. That is what's going to save you. And Paul's writing to address this situation. Jesus is coming, and we will be gathered to him. That's why Paul writes that. He's saying to them, don't worry. He's coming. You're right. But he's going to come for you. You will be gathered to him. But he isn't coming yet. And that's what we read in verse 3. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. 
He says, don't let anyone deceive you. They, and they will try to deceive you. Jesus isn't coming yet. It's not time. Here's proof for you. Two things must happen first. One, the apostasy must come first. Your translation may say rebellion or the falling away. Uh, two, the man of lawlessness, who is the son of perdition. Uh, that's a Hebrew idiom for the man devoted to destruction. It's, it's the one who will be destroyed. Uh, he must come. The Antichrist must be revealed. And notice that this Antichrist's coming is paralleled with what Paul said about Jesus. One, Jesus is going to come, and two, he's going to gather his people to him. With the Antichrist, one, everybody's going to leave, and two, they're all going to go to the Antichrist who's going to come. Again and again, we'll be seeing Paul making this comparison between this true Christ and this false one, this true hope, this false hope. So we see first that the apostasy must occur. To apostatize is to fall away, to leave a belief system. Um, But who is he talking about here? Is he talking about the Jews? No, it's probably not the Jews, because the Jews have already, in a sense, fallen away. They crucified Jesus, and those who did come to him converted to become to follow him. And then even to this day, they've not yet come back to Christ. Is it the world? No, it's not the world, because the world never accepted Jesus in the first place. Is it the angels? No, it can't be the angels, because Satan has already fallen away, and he has already brought with him his demons. So who is it then? Whoever it is must be somebody who is already aligned with Jesus. And who else can that be but his people? It will be Christians, or at least so-called Christians, that will be the ones who fall away, who apostatize or rebel. They will leave the church, and they will also leave Jesus. Both then and even now, we see that. So consider again who Paul is writing to. The people they, that the Thessalonians loved and adored and trusted, all of a sudden, they're leaving. Christ, uh, Christ has called to them, but they've decided that, they don't, that they're going to go elsewhere. They're going to go to this false prophet. They're going to go any number of places for safety. They, and Paul's going, yeah, that's supposed to happen. The apostasy, the apostasy has to come first. Likewise, many faithful women and men, we see them fall away from the church. How many in just these last couple of years have you seen that are big prominent names that have fallen away, been caught in scandal, who have just outright left the faith? Yeah. That's going to happen. The apostasy has to happen first. Don't be surprised by this. And I tell you, before the day that Christ does come, we're going to see a lot more leave. We've been a Christian nation 
for hundreds of years now. And as of late, I mean, it's apparent that we are more and more drifting away. Now, unless there is another uh, Great Awakening, we talked about this in the Great Awakening series that we did recently, unless there's another such awakening, we're going to see more and more apostasy, more and more people fall away as time goes on. But don't be surprised. That's going to happen. That has to happen. The apostasy will come first. But it's not just that these people are leaving. It's that these people are going somewhere. Right now, these people are going to the world. They're going to the pleasures of the world. They're going to other systems, other beliefs, anything in which they can find refuge and safety, a chance to flee from the coming judgment anything that they can find. But then, at that time, they will not flee just to sin and just to lawlessness. They will flee to the one who personifies lawlessness, the one who is lawlessness incarnate. He's the son of perdition, the man doomed to destruction. He may be lawless, but he will be destroyed. Only two other people in the Bible are given that name. One, Judas Iscariot, who was the one who killed Jesus. Two, or who betrayed Jesus. Two, the beast in Revelation, who is the beast of the uh, perdition. They will be destroyed, but not before they draw the apostates out of the church. We continue on in verse 4. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple, proclaiming that he himself is God. This is our clearest description that we receive of this Antichrist. He, he's defined by two characteristics. One, he opposes every so-called God or object of worship. Two, he exalts himself, sitting in the temple of God and proclaiming that he is God. So first, he opposes every so-called God. This Antichrist will not be an inclusivist. He will not say, Christians, you go do your, th your thing. Muslims, you go do your thing. Jews, you go do your thing. Buddhists, you go do your thing. And then we'll all just live in some happy tandem. He will not do that. He will war against not only the true God, but any so-called God, anything that people worship. Second, he's not an atheist or polytheist. He doesn't not believe in a God. He doesn't believe in many gods. This Antichrist will only believe in one God, and that God is himself. This man grabs and claims for glory. He even sits in God's temple. Astute listeners may notice that well, there isn't a temple now. It was destroyed. Now there's nothing on Zion. It's a place of worship for the Muslims. It should be mentioned that Paul might not be talking about God's temple, not the God's temple. He might be talking about the temple in Thessalonica, uh, the Romans came in some time before 
And when they came in, they built a temple there, and they dedicated it to, August, uh, to Augustus and to Julius Caesar, and who had been deified in Roman culture. So Paul could be saying here that this Antichrist figure is going to rule over governments and, be, and exalt himself as king. After all, that's exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did in the book of Daniel, who himself is sort of a prefiguring of this. It could also be, however, that this will take place in a future time in which there is a temple, in which uh, the Antichrist is so audacious to go in and to set up his own throne in, on God's throne and say, I am God. Regardless, he will do something to that effect. This will not be a quiet event, regardless of which of the two cases is true. Um, we will notice, and the world will notice, because he'll either be taking over God's temple, that's not something that happens quietly, or he'll be taking over nations, that is not something that happens quietly. So Paul's warning them and telling them, first, the Antichrist has to come, and you will know when he comes. He will be obvious. It will be apparent. All of this is not news to the Thessalonians, though. For Paul writes, Don't you remember that when I was still with you, I used to tell you about this? He says, We talked about this. Trust me. Trust the gospel, the truth that I brought you. He adds in verse 6, And you know what currently restrains him, so that he will be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but the one now restraining him will do so until he is out of the way, and then the lawless one will be revealed. Unfortunately, we are not privy to all the information that Thessalonians had. They had had Paul travel to them. Paul set up their church. He spent time with them. He talked with them. Not for as long as he would have liked, but he did spend time with them, and he did teach them. And he refers to what he taught them here, and sadly, we're not, we don't have that. Um, that would make this passage a lot easier to understand. There's a lot of interpretations here, and there's all centered around one question. Who is the one who is restraining the man of lawlessness? We don't have time to go through all the options or to discuss them. Some people will say that it's Satan himself that's holding back the man of lawlessness. Some people say it's God. Some people say it's the Roman imperial uh, cult. But let's just focus on what is readily apparent here. The lawless one will not come until a certain time, and there is a reason for that. At the time he does come, he will come in his full force, he will set himself up, and he will declare himself as God, but only at the right time. And again, Paul here is emphasizing that he is not just going to come quietly in the night, but he's going to come in the daylight. He's going to be, is going to be obvious. The word that he uses here for to reveal is the word that Paul only ever uses of God elsewhere in scriptures. He's saying that he's not just going to come. He's not just going to show up. He's not just going to be sort of revealed. He's going to be revealed as if he is God. 
He's going to be magnificent. He's going to be godlike. When he comes, we will know it. This doesn't mean, however, that since the uh, man of lawlessness is restrained, since the man of lawlessness has not come yet and is not working, it doesn't mean he isn't at work, though. We see it in the very falsehood that has brought the Thessalonians to their concern. Just Paul seems to be implying that the figure who is, uh, who is leading them astray, he's almost paralleling him to the man of lawlessness. He's saying the mystery of lawlessness is at work. This lawlessness is working in society. This lawlessness is still working here, even now. So this prompts the question that everybody wants to ask. Who is the Antichrist? A simple answer to this question is I don't know. Uh, He hasn't arrived on the scene yet. When he arrives, it'll be clear, but as of now, it's hard to say. But it's interesting that a lot of people have a whole lot of opinions on who the Antichrist is. Some people say that the Antichrist is a political figure. They'll look at some sort of Islamic uh, dictator, or they will look at a U.S. president. Or uh, I recently talked to a man who would have said that the Pope is the Antichrist. And he's in good company. Uh, All the reformers call the Pope the Antichrist, too. Um, A lot of people, when they read about the temple being desecrated and about the uh, man of lawlessness setting up his throne inside the temple, uh, they'll point to Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, Antiochus was a Greek king who ruled before the time of Jesus. And one of the things he, he ruled over the region of Jerusalem, Judea, greater. And one of the things he did to mostly to just frustrate the Jews was he went into the temple. He took everything valuable out of it and he erected a uh, statue to Zeus that prompted the Maccabean revolt, and it didn't end well, but he did it. Other people will say, no, this is about Nero, which is what a lot of interpreters will go, what 666 points to Nero, according to a lot of interpreters. And so wherever you look, somebody has an opinion on who this Antichrist is. There's a reason for that. It's because the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. All of these figures are probably not the Antichrist. But all of these figures do embody this mystery of lawlessness. The mystery of lawlessness is this. Evil men do evil things. They hate God, and they exalt themselves as God. But they aren't the Antichrist. Uh, John will refer to these people as Antichrists, little a, with a, that is plural. But it's not the Antichrist. We will know when the Antichrist comes. And when he does come, he will boldly and brazenly mock God and say that he is God. But for all of our talk of him, Let's not forget this. 
he is the son of destruction. He is the son of perdition, the man who will be destroyed. Paul writes next, The Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath of his mouth and will bring him to nothing at the appearance of his coming. The Antichrist is going to come, and he is going to come in his glory. He is going to be powerful. He is going to be, uh, he's going to be marvelous. People are going to like the Antichrist. He's not going to be this horrible, demonic figure that everybody's out to get. He's going to look like the good guy. But when the Lord Jesus comes, it's going to not even compare. For all the majesty that the Antichrist will have, Jesus's will be so much greater. The Antichrist is going to come in power, but when Jesus speaks a word, he will be destroyed. People like to think of this idea of good and evil as two diametrically opposed forces, that one is equally as strong as the other, and that there will be this clash, and that good will just barely win out, but it will win. It's not how the Bible says that it's going to go. Jesus will come, and he will only have to speak a word, and the Antichrist will be destroyed. Jesus' power is so great that the son of destruction will be destroyed. Yet that's not to say that the Antichrist will not seem glorious, because Paul continues talking about him in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is based on Satan's working, with all kinds of false miracles, signs, and wonders, and with every wicked deception among those who are perishing. They perish because they did not accept the love of the truth, and so be saved. The lawless one, the lawless one comes by Satan's working, and he just doesn't come. He comes with miracles. He comes with signs and wonders. False they may be, but all the same, they will be great. And people tend to think of these sorts of things as being from God. People go look at miracles, prophecies, dreams, healings, uh, even angels. People mark these things as being things of God and acts of God. And there's a point in which that's somewhat true. It is right for us to look at miracles and praise God for them. But to attribute everything to God is, can be a bit of a mistake. Because we see these in other religions too. Miraculous healings take place in other religions. There seems to be some dark powers behind witchcraft, voodoo, and the like. Religious men become prophets, whether they're lying or telling the truth. They still prophesy things of, from one god or another. Regular, ordinary people are saved from horrible, perilous events by miraculous dealings. But So what's the difference, then, between our religion, between Christianity... And these false religions. You see, Christianity isn't a religion of miracles. Christianity is a religion of truth. 
Now, we have miracles. Like Jesus' coming will be so much greater than the Antichrist's coming, so too Christ's miracles are so much greater than the miracles of the world. But Christianity isn't a religion of miracles, signs, and wonders. It just uses them to prove its truth. The cross and then the resurrection is a great example of this. Another great example of this is the story of Jesus. Uh, he's preaching in a house, and then four, uh, a couple of guys go up on a roof and lower down a paralyzed man into this crowd of people. Jesus looks at the man and goes, "Your," uh, and says that which are, which is easier to say to you, that your sins are forgiven, or that or to take up your bed and walk. And then Jesus is surrounded by Pharisees, and they're all thinking, "Who is this man who claims that he can even forgive sins?" And so Jesus says. To, uh, to prove that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So I say to you, take up your bed and walk. And the man gets up and walks. But why is that? Jesus did care for the good of the man. But he uses it as an example for him to show that he is the one who has authority to forgive sins. Jesus proves his truth with miracles. But Christianity is not a religion of miracles. And so, what is this truth that Christianity is about? Dipping briefly into Cody's sermon from next week, uh, he calls you to this through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, as in verse 14. The truth is the gospel, and it gains us the glory of Christ. This truth is centered around Christ. These are the things that are also held in the apostles' teaching. Uh, Paul goes on to say, hold to the traditions you have been taught, either those that, uh, have, that we have written to you or that we have spoken to you. The truth of Christianity is found in its teaching. But this raises a question. If we are of the truth, and if we also do have the miracles, why do people leave? Why will so many more people still leave? Paul answers that it's because though they had the truth, they did not receive the love of the truth. Notice, is that not that they didn't accept the truth? All of the people who apostatize and who will apostatize will accept the truth of the gospel. They will cognitively recognize and agree that the truth of the gospel but it's all head knowledge. They affirm it, they assent to it, but they don't love it. This entire, no, again, I, I do want to point out 
that head knowledge is important. Let's not forget that because this entire passage has been nothing but Paul going, remember what I taught you. And he'll go on to say, hold to the apostles' teaching. He will time and time again point to the teaching, to the knowledge. It's important. But we can't just receive it. We also have to receive the love of it. We have to have both head knowledge and heart knowledge. You can't simply know Jesus. You have to love him. And you can't simply love Jesus. You have to know him. He goes on to say, uh, For this reason, God sends them a strong delusion so that they will believe the lie, so that all will be condemned, those who did not believe the truth, but delighted in unrighteousness. When these people choose not to love the truth, God sends them a strong delusion. And this, as Tanner was saying last week, isn't something we particularly like to think about. This isn't how we typically like to portray God. But when these people have already said that they don't love his truth, they, he sends a delusion and further hardens their hearts. Before, they already knew not to follow the Antichrist. Because all of this time, like we've been talking about how obvious the Antichrist is going to be. That he's going to be apparent, everyone's going to know. If, he's, if everybody knows who he is, why are they going to follow him? He's the Antichrist. And he's the son of destruction. Nobody wants to sign up on that side. Nobody wants to join the losing team. Why will they do it? Because though, because they didn't love the truth, God's going to delude them. God is going to make it so that they will not, so that even though they already knew not to fall after false gospels, they're now just going to see this conjurer cheap tricks and they're going to just happily follow him. And by this, all who did not believe the truth but delighted in unrighteousness, they will be condemned. They will go out from us and they will worship the man of lawlessness and they will be destroyed with the man of lawlessness. And so, we're left with a choice to make. Which fate will you choose? I love the passage that Cody's going to preach on next week. Um, it part of it really emphasizes that God chooses his people. And that's a lot of what Ash was talking about during our All Saints series. But don't think that that means that there is no choice in the matter. It is your choice to make. Will you accept the love of the truth? Or will you delight in unrighteousness? Will you delight in the miracles, the pleasures, the wonders of the world? Or will you delight in Christ? I ask you, brothers and sisters, to accept the love of the truth and to delight in our Lord and Savior, the true Christ. Let us pray. 
Lord, thank you for this warning and this choice that we have. For you have not left us to just not know your truth. And you have even warned us that if we do not love your truth, you have warned us of the consequences. Let us take this opportunity to reflect on ourselves, to reflect on our lives and look to see which have we chosen. Do we delight in the truth in Christ or do we delight in unrighteousness? Let us take this opportunity, Lord. Let us glorify you. Let us behold you and let us praise you this Advent season. It's in Christ's holy and precious name which we pray. Amen.